the three of us stared up at this crack, which started with hand jams and then moved left into a roof that had another crack running through it. Somehow, I ended up being the one who would lead it, so I racked up with all the gear we had. I climbed up the first 30 feet, jamming my hands and feet in the crack, and then moving left into the overhanging roof. As I hung from the roof, I had a desperate feeling that I needed to get some gear in. My last cam was 15 feet down and 5 feet over, to the right. The more I thought about my situation, the more I was losing control. Control, that's what you need in the vertical. Mastery, a feeling that you have a grip on the situation. I was hanging there, almost horizontal, and moved my hand out of the jam, and then I slipped. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode 5. Thanks for your patience during this time period. You've probably noticed it's been a little while since we got an episode out and just been figuring out the home studio and everything like that. There's a lot of things I could say right now and should be said at the heart of everything. This episode really kind of dives into the characters in Gunnison that I met and changed my life, the community that I became a part of. Between the, the last episode that we recorded and this episode, we lost a giant, we lost an icon in our community, Dan Escalane. Dan is not a character in the book, but he easily could have been a, a best friend to two of my good friends, um, Adam Farrow and Randy Felix, and just a, a loving awesome person that touched so many people's lives you know our community will not be the same without Dan and it's just a heartbreaking major huge loss I did write an article about a short piece that I published in our local paper and you can go to the zines website to read that but Dan we love you and we are gonna miss you since it has been so long let's let's get into episode 5 of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, our first season here. A couple messages before we get into it. The number one way to support this podcast and the climbing zine is to subscribe to the climbing zine. We put out three issues a year. We are the world's creative climbing publication, and you can find our store online just by Googling around or head on over to our Instagram page and check out the link in our bio. You can also buy American Climber there if uh, you want to get to reading the book before you come back into the podcast. Um, this whole first season is me reading the book, talking about it, and interviewing some characters from the book. And on that note, in the last episode, Sean and I, I I've re-listened to it a couple times. It's just been really enjoyable to re-listen to it and revisit that conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We never talked about how Two Tent Timmy got his name. Sean gave him that nickname in Crested Butte in the early 2000s, and Tim used to live in a tent inside another tent, and he had two kind of crappy tents, and they made for one good tent, and he could kind of cook on the outer, you know, had one smaller tent and, and inside the the, uh, the bigger one, and it was hilarious, and we still call him Two Tent to this day. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art, and Sticker Art is... A uh, small business here out of Durango, Colorado, a good friend of mine, Brian Acoin, and he has been a huge mentor to me with my business, and 
he's kind of that person where, you know, we all have those friends where, oh, I'm going to start this uh, sticker company and it's going to be awesome. and It's going to be really artistic. And, you know, a lot of people have ideas like that. But Bryant has fully executed this idea and he makes beautiful stickers. He donates money um, to nonprofits and he's just an all around good guy. So check them out at stickerart.com. And thanks, Brian, for being our first ever sponsor of our podcast. Chapter 7 Winter was upon Gunnison, and I quickly learned that it was billed as the coldest city in the lower 48. Neither part of that statement is technically true. Gunnison isn't really a city, and there are other places that can contend for the coldest. But the truth in that little white lie is that Gunnison does get cold. Really cold, like negative 30 cold. The type of cold you feel in your bones, the type of cold that freezes your car so it won't start in the morning. It didn't bother me that first winter. I was too awe in the beauty of my first winter in Colorado. I would walk to class, smoking cigarettes, inhaling the coldest, purest air in between puffs of tobacco floating across that white snow under the bluest sky my eyes had ever seen, an azure that led me to believe I was under a different sky than I was in the Midwest, the only place I'd ever known. People seemed to huddle together in a camaraderie of cold. Strangers would always say hello, and my teachers were not distant totem poles of education. They were people I would also run into at the grocery store. Towny bikes were everywhere, even in winter, plowing through the snow, their riders covered from head to toe, and warm clothes. I had the opportunity to get deeper into winter when I signed up for a beginner recreation course. One day we're all supposed to go snowshoeing near a wilderness area with a backdrop of snow-covered peaks amidst large pine trees that carried a scent of purity and an invigoration that I could hardly put into words at the time. Somehow I lost the group and was off on my own, one foot in front of the other in the magical white snow and one foot in front of the other, and again, and again. A meditation came over me, and I had a vision. I would take another step towards cleaning out the deep, dark, hollow void that lived inside of me. I'd quit smoking cigarettes. The vision actually carried through, and while the withdrawal of nicotine was unlike anything I'd ever experienced, the freedom of independence from a substance felt even better. That recreation course took me even deeper into the heart of winter. One weekend, our class had to trek into the woods where we would spend the night in snow caves. We skied in, and quickly, as night approached, I found myself under the greatest array of stars my eyes had ever seen. Our homes for the evening would be snow caves, already constructed by another class the day before. Around the fire that night, the topics of conversation ranged from the skiing season to kayaking, to mountain biking, to mountain climbing in South America. But one guy had a story like no other. Maddie was a short, muscular, bodybuilding type of guy. After talking to him for a few minutes, you realized he was a guy you wanted on your side. He had a look of crazy, but also a heart of gold. When the storytelling started around the fire, Early 20-somethings were squeezing the juice out of a mere few years of real-life experience they had. And a few folks that had already known Maddie's story begged him to tell it. The summer before, Maddie had been climbing in West Virginia and was a couple hundred feet above the ground, about to belay his partner up, when his anchor failed. Maddie plummeted to the earth, 
landing on his head. He wasn't wearing a helmet, which somehow, he said, was advantageous. I think somewhere in his spirit, he was part superhero. He didn't recall a thing from the accident and ended up with a huge metal plate in his head. All in all, he was a walking, talking miracle. And the last part of the story was how he got involved with the mountain rescue team at our college, ready to give back and save lives, just as his life was saved by a mountain rescue team earlier that summer. We all looked at Maddie as if he was a hero, and no one could come close to his story. That night, after the fire burned away, we watched the stars as long as one can watch stars, and we climbed into the snow cave. I slept restlessly because the cave may be claustrophobic, but it was also mind-opening. In the heart of winter, in one of the coldest places in the United States, you could wander off into the woods and sleep comfortably in a structure made from snow. Characters like Maddie were commonplace in Gunnison, and I was more than eager to hear their stories. One guy had ridden his bike from coast to coast, and another had climbed Everest. I'd never known people like this. After all, I was just a kid from Illinois. The athleticism oozing from every corner both intimidated me and inspired me. After winter passed, I invited Tim out for a visit. I was still terribly lonely and wanted a friend from home to move out to Gunnison. Tim seemed to be the perfect fit. He was less than happy with college life back in Illinois and wanted a change. I did my best to sell Gunnison as his future home. Caleb had already moved out to Colorado, north of Denver, to a town called Fort Collins. And when spring break rolled through, Tim scheduled a visit. The arrival of spring stunned my heart. The life that sprang following the calm white stillness of the forever winter was filled with a re-energizing force. I could try to poeticize, but I would certainly fall short. The azure of the sky seemed so pure, as if the world was a new place. Women were more alluring and attractive. There was an excitement that originated in nature, that rebirth and new beginnings were possible. And then there was granite, an infinite supply of rock in and around Gunnison, a place to practice your art of climbing. I'd picked up Tim in the front range, and we drove towards Gunnison. He was as dumbfounded by everything as I was. Is that a ski resort? he asked. No, that's just a hill, I replied. Ten minutes later, is that a ski resort? No, it's just another hill, I replied again. The Midwest lowers your expectations for geography and adventure so much that everything becomes something. Every little hill, every mountain pass, and every rock was worth taking in. We snapped photos like tourists. Tim had arrived, and I had a friend from home in a place I wanted to make my new home. We sampled the local granite, and it tasted like freedom. The scene is always quiet in Gunnison, and in the early 2000s, it was especially serene. All the college students were traveling the circuit that the climbing community visits, places like Waco Tanks, Indian Creek, Joshua Tree, and Red Rocks, which were not quite yet in my lexicon. I did my pitch for Tim to move to Gunnison, and quiet as he was, I didn't get much out of him. He liked it, though, and I could witness that in his eyes. When you brought Tim close to climbing, he had a different look. A thousand-mile stare, which brought you into the moment as well. We had finally arrived in the moment, which some people never find because they never discover something that makes their soul sing so much. Just as Tim was about to head back to Illinois, we strolled through campus to show him the climbing gym. I noticed a flyer for an upcoming climbing competition. I had slowly been more attracted to outdoor climbing than gym climbing. 
but something deep inside me wondered if I could do well at a climbing competition. As if I could provide some sort of redemption for never succeeding at basketball. I would soon learn that climbing pays off in a different sort of way for most of us. A pay in poetry, a form of payment that it takes a while to understand. I entered the climbing competition and felt incredibly nervous about it. All around me were the characters I'd identified as climbers on campus. The shrugged shoulders that bore t-shirts with the names of climbing companies. Those characters whose hands were marked with white chalk and whose vocabulary spoke wide-eyed of epics and beautiful summits. I was as scared as them as I was of the exposure, the void. I was hardly ready to compete and nervously climb the first few boulder problems I attempted. My nerves were already shot three climbs in. I should have looked around and realized nobody cared. I already wasn't the worst climber. I had the perfect build, five foot nine, 150 pounds, and I was far from the best. At most climbing competitions, at this sort of level, no one gives a shit anyways. It's all about getting together and having fun. When I finally completed a problem, I dropped down to the pads, and a guy came up to me. He was obviously a climber, chalk covered his nose, and his arms could have been stolen from a quarterback. He greeted me with a, nice work, bro. My arms were shaking and skinny as a water boy's, and I wondered why was this guy being so supportive? The nice work, bro, felt so genuine, so inviting. It immediately made me feel more relaxed. As I reached out to shake his hand, it was like I was formally invited into the climbing world. No one in Illinois had this openness, this feeling that you, even though you were no one, could have someone bring you into this community. The guy was Ben Johnson. After the competition, I felt the community of climbing for the first time, and I felt accepted. If for no other reason that I found a community that is accepting in its nature. I only had a couple friends who climbed, and when they weren't available, I'd take my crash pad and go bouldering by myself. Soon, climbing was not nearly a sport. It sent my brain into a place of meditation, a sort of peace that I'd lost since I was a child. As always, spring flowed into summer, and summer was even more spectacular. All I had to do was attend to my schedule of washing dishes at work. A couple of climbers were hired there, and my social circle began to expand. One day, I called Caleb and told him how excited I was about climbing. Sensing my enthusiasm, Caleb suggested we go to the Wind Rivers in Wyoming and sample some granite in the wilderness. I countered that we should do something mellower, and a compromise was struck in the form of Devil's Tower. Devil's Tower is one of those destinations, one of those rocks in the world that makes you think something divine happened there to create it. In the middle of the plains of Wyoming, it rises 800 feet in the air, a perfect cylinder of granite with cracks of all kinds going up it. This was my first real climbing objective. I'd become infatuated with climbing over the previous year and a half, but this was the first time really putting anything to the test, to see if I could climb up into the sky to see what was up there, and to see what might be within myself. My memories of Devil's Tower are hidden beneath more than a decade of other memories. Hundreds of climbing days, a dozen lovers, a college degree, a million cups of coffee. Yet somehow these memories, especially the day we climbed to the top, become crystal clear like a mountain stream. We spent our first couple days getting used to the stone, 
climbing up some single pitch roots just 100 feet up the tower, and then coming back down. Mountaineers might call it acclimatization. A rock climber doesn't really have a name for it. But feeling the vibe out of an area and getting comfortable on the rock is always a wise decision. Climbers usually perform best at areas they know well. Familiarity leading to success. So we spent a couple days getting comfortable. Caleb had already spent some time at Devil's Tower when he was younger, so he was probably waiting for me to catch up to his level. After getting used to the cracks of the tower, we decided that we'd climb to the top. Devil's Tower seems like such a strange name for a place that has such an empowering energy to it. It is a sacred place to the native tribes, and every year it is closed to climbing for the month of June. That morning, we started up, and I was beginning to feel the energy more than ever. As we approached it, we were no longer just looking up at it. We were experiencing it. At the base of our selected route, solar, we wrapped our hands in athletic tape and started up. It was a hand crack, the kind of climb that swallows your entire hand, and then you jam your feet in as well. And, when mastered, it feels as secure as vertical rock climbing can ever feel. At this point, I'd only climbed a few hand cracks, and my muscles weren't conditioned for it. Standing at the base of Devil's Tower, with steep granite above my head, I was about to step out of my comfort zone and enter a world of something new. To Caleb, I don't think this was really a big deal. In fact, he'd done this route previously. For me, now, I don't think it would be a big deal either. But that's not what climbing is about. It's about those moments you have on the rock, living in the moment, dealing with what fear comes up, and managing the situation. To success, or admitting that today is not the day, and backing off. But that day, there wasn't a cloud in the Wyoming sky, and the sun beat down on the tower as it has for eons. I tied into the rope with the figure eight knot, the knot of endlessness, and Caleb put me on belay. This was the steepest crack I'd ever led, and the hand jams were secure, but the higher I got, the more desperate it felt. I dug deeper within and kept jamming. I was giving it an effort that I'd never given a climb before. I was sweating and breathing heavily, and Caleb was sending up encouraging words as I hand jammed and slammed my rubber climbing shoes into the crack, inching up higher. The climb demanded more and more effort the higher I got, and I was at my limit, maybe past my limit. I breathed harder and harder, striving to hold on, as my arms became more and more pumped, exhausted. Suddenly, I was more in the moment than I'd ever been in my entire adult life, with my existence defined by my limbs being shoved into this granite crack. And then I could see the anchors, two bolts above a small ledge, marking where I would belay. I mustered what strength and energy I had within, climbed to those anchors, and clipped in, attaching my rope to some carabiners. A wave of emotion overtook me as I looked down the climb and out into the plains. I cried tears of joy. I'd pushed my body and mind to the limit. I pulled up the remaining rope and put Caleb on belay. I was on cloud nine. When Caleb joined me, I was about to express my joy. But before I could, he started cursing about his shoes being uncomfortable. Caleb led the next pitch, solidly jamming upward, and that was the end of the difficult climbing. It was nothing but scrambling on loose blocks on barely vertical terrain to the top. On top was a summit register, which we signed. I don't recall what I wrote, but there was a quote in it. 
Climbing isn't worth dying for, but it is worth risking dying for. From the great Wyoming climber, Todd Skinner. Years later, Skinner would tragically die in Yosemite in a rappelling accident. Caleb and I shared the moment of being on the football field-sized grassy summit together. He'd brought me there in more ways than one. He was the first person to take me climbing, and why he did, I'll never know. Maybe just because I asked to. Maybe because he needed someone to belam. But either way, he shared climbing with me, just as climbers have always done with friends. On the summit, I couldn't help but think of a story I'd heard about one of the first people to ever reach the top of Devil's Tower, George Hopkins. It was the fall of 1941, and he was a parachutist who had jumped out of a plane onto the tower to win a $50 bet. He'd hoped to make the descent with a rope that was dropped out of the plane, but something went wrong, and he was stranded on top of the tower. The National Park Service began organizing a rescue and weighed their options. Eventually, they accepted the offer of Jack Durance, who made the second ascent of Devil's Tower in 1938, to lead the effort. Meanwhile, Hopkins had food, water, blankets, and a bottle of whiskey dropped to him, with assurance that help was on the way. He spent five nights alone on the summit. Imagine what he must have been thinking. These days, people can climb up and down it all the time. But at that point in history, only a handful of people had ever been up there. On day six, he was rescued by a team that Durant's led, with seven other climbers, and they led him down safely from the summit, making several rappels. Caleb and I shook hands, looked around some more at the unique panoramic view of the Wyoming Plains, and rappelled down the tower. After the climbing bug bit me on Devil's Tower, I had it once and for all, and also tried to see what else could give me a similar feeling. There's always a feeling of needing a new drug. And the next one I tried was kayaking, and then skiing, and then ice climbing. But nothing did it for me like rock climbing. I also finally had something to write about. And it poured out of me in the form of poetry. These were the best of times, the purest of times, and the poetry wrote itself. That memory of Devil's Tower stood out above all other memories. And back at the college, in our library, I wrote out a poem. Nature, complemented with education, is a powerful force. When I was writing, as the great rapper Rakim once penned, I was trapped in between the lines, and I escaped when I finished the poem. Writing is never finished, and neither is climbing. The summit as a final page is an illusion. We are always writing that next poem and planning that next climb in our minds. This was a time of great romance and mystery, a time before every climb was recorded on the ether of the internet, and before there was much information available other than books for climbing. My path was not set in stone, but rather the stone set my path. Tim moved out that fall, and I felt the confidence of his presence, combined with my second year ever at a college. I decided I would study what inspired me, recreation and environmental studies, and my path would unfold as it should from there. Climbing with Tim changed everything. At first, we were equals. Our climbing ability remained the same once we both knew the basics. Then all of a sudden, his ability shot out like a rocket, and I was left holding on with one arm as the rocket blazed through space. I followed Tim to Granite all over the state, from our backyard climbs to Turkey Rocks in the South Platte region. I was amazed as he honed his abilities. He could dance on tiny holds while his fingers held on to locks, calm, cool, and collected. Sometimes I would have to remind him to play skier. He was just so confident he forgot. 
That was my role in those days. Keep Tim alive and keep myself alive. Our circle of friends had grown by now. We were both working at restaurants and I joined the college's rescue team. We had a crew. We did the usual things that 21-year-olds do, but always and forever, the mission was climbing. Tim had two jobs, so often I had to solicit other partners for climbing objectives. Jared was a wide-eyed Colorado kid who oozed passion and put climbing above everything else. He lived in the dorms, and a sticker tagged on a window as you approached his room read, Climb now. Work later. One day, he suggested we check out some climbs in the backyard of his boyhood home of Grand Junction. Even if the trip was a failure, we could visit his best friend Josh and eat food from his parents' cupboards. Colorado National Monument, where we went climbing, was like something out of an old classic cowboy movie, full of red sand and stone. Jared told me stories about how he and Josh would go climbing before they owned any proper climbing equipment. They would just go out and climb, and somehow emerge unscathed. Listening to those tales, I felt grateful I'd been given some proper instruction before I took the sharp end. We found our way to Devil's Kitchen, a series of freestanding red rock formations 70 feet in the air, with some crack climbs here and there. My grandfather had given me two for Christmas a couple months before, and I was eager to use them. The three of us stared up at this crack, which started with hand jams and then moved left into a roof that had another crack running through it. Somehow, I ended up being the one who would lead it, so I racked up with all the gear we had. I climbed up the first 30 feet, jamming my hands and feet in the crack, and then moving left into the overhang. As I hung from the roof, I had a desperate feeling that I needed to get some gear in. My last cam was 15 feet down and 5 feet over to the right. The more I thought about my situation, the more I was losing control. That is what you need in the vertical. Control. Mastery. A feeling that you have a grip on the situation. I was hanging there, almost horizontal, and moved my hand out of the jam, and then I slipped. Death winked. The end. No control. It all happened so quickly. I was flipped upside down, and in one brief instant, I hurled face first towards the ground. And then I looked to my belayer, Jared. I was hanging five feet above the ground and looking into Jared's eyes. I quickly flipped myself back around, and Jared lowered me down to him. I looked at Josh and instantly hugged him. I cried from fear, but I was uninjured. I had flipped upside down because the rope was behind my legs when I moved into the roof. I made a very beginner mistake. I should have placed protection on the horizontal crack before moving into it. I was doing what many beginners climbers do, learning by mistake. But the mistakes in climbing are always attached to living or dying. I only lived out of chance, luck, Perhaps there were spirits looking out after me, or perhaps I had placed that cam at just the right location. A few more feet lower, and I would have landed head first on the ground. Instead, it was a 35-footer into the air. I never did tell Grandma that her Christmas gift saved my life. That was episode five of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. Our podcast is produced by Chad Rich. We'll be coming at you with another episode. I promise we won't make you wait as long as you did for this one. Um, 
And as we said in the intro, the best way to support the climbing zine is to subscribe to it. And you can do so at our website or just Googling climbing zine store or heading over to the link in our bio at our Instagram page. And we also now have a Patreon account if you would like to support us that way. Uh, I think you can support it for as little as a dollar a month. And I know that's what I like to do for some of my favorite climbing podcasts or other podcasts. I do that for subscribe for a small amount for, for the love of climbing podcast, which is a great podcast. Thanks for listening. This is Luke Mehal from the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast coming at you from Durango, Colorado.